small, like this Bible, it's on page 786, and on the one with the really fancy, it's um, 1,115, and I think it's also up on the screen. Yep, excellent. Okay, this is a really exciting chapter, actually. Some cool things happen in it. Okay, um, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, they to the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in, po in power. After all this happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Well, I think Catherine's right. Lots of cool things happen in this chapter, don't they? Uh, in fact, actually, we're looking at the whole of the chapter of 19, so we'll be looking at what uh, happens a little bit after uh, what we read in that uh, reading as well. So let's bow in prayer, shall we? Father, we want to thank you for this uh, time uh, that we can uh, focus on your word. Uh, Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit, that he would be uh, ministering amongst us uh, this morning now, that uh, in the hearing of your word that we would uh, understand, that we would believe, and Father, that we would repent, uh, that we would be people who uh, uh, live with Jesus as our Lord and our Saviour, and we bring honour to his name uh, in our world. And we pray these things now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, something unusual is happening in the West. 
I'm not talking about the Western world, I'm talking about the Western suburbs of Sydney, uh, where in a small group of suburbs, people are actually religious. Um, they're very religious. They're more religious than people are in most of the rest of Australia. But it's no Bible Belt. It's not a Bible Belt. Instead, uh, there is a, uh, in this small pocket of suburbs, there is a, a very rich uh, diversity of other spiritualities with uh, people of uh, Hindu uh, background, with their multiplicity of gods, uh, with uh, Muslims, with uh, Buddhists, and with uh, a variety of other spiritualities that you may never have heard of. In fact, 85% of people in just that small pocket of suburbs say that they are religious, which is actually much higher than the national average. And it's obviously because of the um, high degree of uh, cultural diversity in that region. But as Christians, we might uh, think to ourselves, we might wonder, well, with all of that um, spirituality, all of those different spiritualities going on, uh, where does Jesus fit into that? Uh, indeed, in such a marketplace of spiritualities, what hope uh, is there for the gospel in a place such as that? The bigger question, of course, is what hope is there for the gospel in any suburb, in any town, in any city uh, in Australia today? Now, when the Apostle Paul uh, visited the city of Ephesus, uh, it was actually a little bit more like those very religious suburbs in Sydney uh, because Ephesus was, a, was the home to lots of different spiritualities, uh, lots of different gods, lots of different idols, lots of different ways of worship. But central to the life, to the spiritual life of the city of Ephesus was the worship of one particular god, or a goddess, actually, and her name was Artemis. Now, Artemis, uh, in Greek mythology, was the daughter of the god Zeus, and her name has a meaning. Uh, her name means safe and sound, because that's how she made people feel, safe and and sound. Uh, with all of her uh, powers, uh, her um, powers over other spiritual, uh, spiritual beings, uh, with her, um, uh, she was actually seen to be someone who provided a lot of uh, comfort uh, for women in childbearing, and she was also famous as a huntress. So images of Artemis uh, often uh, show her with a, a bow and an arrow but she made people feel safe and sound. Now, the temple of Artemis uh, in Ephesus was very impressive. Uh, originally, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it was four times larger than the uh, Parthenon in Athens. And so it was at the centre of life for people in Ephesus, indeed, uh, people, many people, multitudes of people uh, would uh, flock to Ephesus from other parts of the world uh, in order to see 
the great temple of Artemis and her image, her statue. Uh, you can go there today, uh, if you like. Has anyone been to Ephesus? Um, here, uh, Julia's been to Ephesus. And did you go to the uh, temple of Artemis? And uh, was there much more there than just, uh, just a, some stones and, and a pillar? There's one pillar, one column that's still standing. It's in ruins today. But you can go there and you can see it. But that was Ephesus with all of its spirituality and its diversity of spiritualities. And we'd have to ask the question, well, in that context, what hope is there for the gospel? Now, a couple of weeks back, we saw in Acts chapter 19 that uh, when Paul made a brief stopover in Ephesus, uh, while he was on a ship, he was sailing towards Jerusalem, but uh, when Paul made a brief stopover in Ephesus, he actually visited the the Jewish synagogue there. And uh, why did he go there? Well, he went there to, to preach and to tell Jews living in Ephesus about Jesus. Now, do you remember how those Jews responded? Anyone remember? They were actually a bit enthusiastic. They were interested in what Paul had to say. In fact, they asked him, would you please stay a bit longer to teach us more about Jesus? And Paul had to say, look, sorry, guys, I've got to go. I've got a fixed itinerary. And so he had to leave them reluctantly, and he promised that he, Lord willing, would come back, that he would return to Ephesus. And this is where that happens, because in chapter 19, Paul makes good on that promise and he comes back to Ephesus where he encounters a variety of different spiritualities. And we're going to go through those spiritualities this morning just very briefly. We'll touch on each one of them. Um, the first spirituality that he encounters is actually a good news story. It's a great news story because it's about some unfinished business. In verses 1 to 7, if you've got your Bibles open at Acts chapter 19, Paul met some men, uh, 12 of them in all, I understand from what the passage says there. Paul met some men who are described as being disciples. Disciples. But the question is, disciples of who? <laughs> what did that mean? It, it seems that they, they may have appeared to Paul to be Christians of sorts, but not really, because when he dug a bit deeper, he discovered that they were actually disciples of John the Baptist. How about that? How about that? Do you know, in the world today, there is a, um, there is a group of people who are called Sabean Mandaeans. Anyone heard of the Sabean Mandaeans? They, um, until recent times, until a couple of wars in the Middle East. They, uh, they mostly lived in Persia, but uh, now they've dispersed to other parts of the world, uh, mostly as refugees. But uh, the Sabean Mandaeans are actually disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist. 10,000 of them live in Australia. 5,000 of them live in the western suburbs of Sydney. They follow John the Baptist, but they don't follow Jesus. And they, in fact, they perform baptisms in the Nepean River. 
uh, just like John would have in the Jordan. And they trace their roots back 2,000 years. It seems that uh, during John the Baptist's ministry, there were some people who, who heard about John or even were there and witnessed John and they heard his message about repentance and being baptised but they didn't stick around to hear about Jesus. And they left the Jordan River and they perhaps took John's message elsewhere. John's message of repentance and baptism, but not Jesus. So here, uh, 20 years after the death of John the Baptist, these disciples have got some unfinished business. And Paul is more than happy to finish the job by sharing with them the gospel of Jesus and by baptising them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And after which we are told that they spoke in other languages and they prophesied. Which in Acts uh, doesn't always happen when people believe the gospel. Um, sometimes it's recorded as happening. Most of the time it's not recorded as happening. But here it may be helpful for these people in terms of their transition from being uh, like old covenant people, people sort of stuck in between being disciples of John the Baptist to now being included in the people of God uh, in the lordship of Jesus. And in a spiritually charged place like Ephesus, it, it was a demonstration of God's power at work as Paul finished the job which John had started. Now, the second spirituality Paul encountered was in the synagogue. And I'm going to get you to look at your Bibles. I'm going to read that through a little bit of it from verse 8. Um, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and they publicly maligned the way. That's what Christians were called, the way. And so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, that's the Roman province of which Ephesus was the, at the heart, that uh, all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now this was the synagogue that uh, Paul had promised that he would return to and it seems that they were still interested to hear Paul. They were interested enough to keep on listening for three months, which is Paul's longest period of time as far as we know actually in a synagogue three months before the relationship became tense which is no surprise because when you share the, the gospel boldly and persuasively there's going to be a couple of different reactions to that um, some people are going to believe it and others are going to not believe it. And when they refuse to believe, that's when the relationship 
starts to get a bit interesting. Um, the gospel divides people. You know, I used to run regular um, school scripture seminars in a particular high school once a term uh, with a team of people. And uh, we did this for some time. On one occasion, we were, we, were, we were a bit more clearer and a bit more bolder than what we normally were. And, you know, that was the only time that we got pushback, that, uh, that we got a, a formal complaint from the school. It was also the only time when the very next Sunday there were two rows of uh, students from the school who came along to church. We didn't ask them to come, but they were challenged and they wanted to hear more. The gospel has its effect, doesn't it? Some will believe and others will not believe. For Paul, after a while, some of these Jews um, we're told that they maligned the way, that they bad-mouthed the Christians. And so Paul and the other disciples, who might have included those ones who had been uh, disciples of John the Baptist, who uh, came to understand Christ, it uh, could have also included Priscilla and Aquila, who had remained in Ephesus, and others who'd been converted during that time that Paul was in that synagogue. Uh, Paul and these other disciples left the synagogue and they moved into a public lecture hall, which turns out to be a great move. Great move. As Paul then started daily Bible studies, Bible discussions in a building where ordinary people just felt comfortable walking into. A bit like a few years ago when we ran the Rediscover Jesus evangelistic events at Port Panthers. Anyone feels comfortable to go to that. But Paul had the keys to this lecture hall for two full years. And so during that time, many people heard the gospel. Many people, Jews and Greeks, people living in Ephesus, people coming to Ephesus for business or for family or for whatever reasons, and coming and going and listening to Paul and then taking that gospel to where they'd come from so that the whole province of Asia uh, got to hear about the Lord. Now, the third spirituality Paul encounters had to do with miracles and magic. That the miracles were done by Paul. Pick it up at verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. How about that? Handkerchiefs. Now, I, I reckon that um, if I give you my handkerchief, it's probably not going to heal any sickness. <laughs> it's more likely to do the opposite. Uh, not today. If I was sick, I wouldn't be here, COVID-19 and all of that. But you get what I'm saying. By the way, these um, handkerchiefs and aprons... It probably wasn't handkerchief like we think of a handkerchief. These were probably uh, uh, cloths which were related to Paul's work as a tent maker and had uh, touched his 
had had contact with his skin, and uh, then uh, people miraculously, uh, by God, were healed through those items. Now there is a special reason why people in in Ephesus would have taken particular note of Paul's miraculous healings and evil spirits being driven out. I mean, that uh, you take note of that in any place, but in Ephesus in particular, because sorcery and magic uh, were rife in Ephesus's, in the spirituality of Ephesus. And people believed uh, that if you, ha- if you only had the right formulation of words, if you had the right incantation, the right magical spells, that you could do these kind of things. You could heal people, you could drive out demons, you could do other miraculous things. And even some of the unbelieving Jews tried to drive out evil spirits um, by using a kind of a magical formula. Because they thought, they saw Paul doing it, and they thought that the name of the Lord Jesus was a special form of words, like a magical incantation that could work for them. And so they would go around saying, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to the evil spirit to leave this person. They were saying this even though they didn't believe in Jesus. Well, let's see what happened in verse 14. Um, because some of the people who were doing this were people who should have actually known better, even more so than regular Jews. In verse 14, we're told that seven sons of Sceva, who was a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them all such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Pretty embarrassing for the seven sons of Sceva, don't you reckon? <laughs> and a huge challenge, a massive challenge to the magical world view of the spirituality of the city of Ephesus. Because what's it saying? It's saying that the, the name of Jesus isn't some magical formula. Uh, that Jesus is... Jesus is real and Jesus is powerful and as word got around people started to fear God and rather than you know earlier on the Jews had maligned the you know spoken poorly about Christians instead after this event people are actually starting in Ephesus to honor the name of the Lord Jesus Now, can you be a Christian if you think that you're good enough for God? Well, the answer to that is no, isn't it? Because if you think you're good enough for God, then you're saying that you don't think that you're a sinner. And if you don't think you're a sinner, then you don't actually need Jesus as your saviour. You're wrong in that. But you need to realise that you need you're a sinner. In verse 18, lots of people in Ephesus now started confessing their sins. 
And for some of them, their sins included sorcery. How about that? Sorcerers became Christians. How do we know that they were genuine? Well, they repented. How did they repent? Well, they repented by by gathering up all of their expensive magical scrolls, their sorcery scrolls, and throwing them on the fire, burning them up. It's like when people from um, Eastern religions today turn to Christ and they destroy their shrines and their Buddhas and their other idols. Or when anyone becomes a Christian and breaks from whatever it was that was occupying the place in their lives that rightfully belongs to God. Because Jesus is now Lord. But in Ephesus, who is supposed to be Lord? It's Artemis, isn't it? Artemis who, well... She is now starting to lose her grip. And that has an impact on business. We're going to go to verse 23 now, a section that uh, wasn't read to us early on, so uh, this is a fresh reading for you. Verse 23, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. And he called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business, and you see how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole of the province of Asia, He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. (laughs) And then he spells out three dangers. Number one, he says to these tradesmen, number one, he says, because of this, that our business will lose its good name. Number two, he says that the temple will be discredited. And number three, the goddess will be robbed of her majesty. Although I reckon Demetrius was just interested in his business, don't you? <laughs> Sounds that way. Now, in Ephesus, um, there is a, um, uh, <clears throat> an, amph- an amphitheatre. Uh, it's a huge amph- amphitheatre. Uh, they reckon that it... Uh, seated between 20 to 25,000 people. There's a photograph of it there for you in your bulletins. That's what it looks like today. So it's huge, isn't it? We'd be pretty proud if we had a stadium that fitted 20 to 25,000 people. And it was there that Demetrius formed an angry mob. And the angry mob went and seized two of Paul's co-workers, Aristarchus and Gaius, Uh, They didn't seize Paul. Paul actually wanted to go and address the people, but he was advised not to. The other disciples didn't want him to do so. And also one of the leading officials in the city didn't want him to do so either, who was a friend of Paul's. But they bundled Aristarchus and Gaius into this theatre to face a crowd, a mob, 
that had gathered. Now, it's a bit of a renter crowd. Um, we're told in verse 32 that most of them actually didn't have any idea why they were there. And so why did they, you know, why, what did they do? Well, for two solid hours in unison together, they chanted out these words, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great for two hours, solid. And friends, Greek amphitheatres had remarkable acoustics. And so you can imagine that. You can imagine that this would have been a very intimidating experience for Aristarchus and Gaius. But key to this uproar is the response of the city clerk of Ephesus who hoses down the situation. See, um, Demetrius had claimed that, that there was danger, uh, that the honour of his industry was in danger, that the honour of the temple was in danger, that the honour of the great goddess herself was in danger and would be diminished by the gospel which Paul preached. But in verses 38 to 41, the city clerk addresses the mob and he says, look, you're wrong about this. You're wrong about this. There is no danger. There's no risk. There's no danger of those things happening. I mean, think about it. He says, the whole world knows about Artemis and her temple. The whole world knows that the image of Artemis is not man-made, but rather that it just dropped down from heaven. <laughs> That's what he told him. So don't worry. The whole world knows that. Paul's message, it is no danger to Artemis. In fact, he says in verse 40 that the real danger is that we might all get charged for rioting by the Romans. So is he right? Well, about rioting, yes, he was absolutely right on that. There was a real possibility that the Romans could have them charged with rioting. But about Artemis not being in danger, no, he is absolutely wrong. He's absolutely wrong. Demetrius was the one who was correct. Because the, the arrival of the gospel in Ephesus, that means that the days of the idol-making business, the, the days of the temple, and the days of the goddess are now numbered because of Jesus. You know... Um, Sometimes I get excited when I meet people um, of other spiritualities. Um, I get excited by that because it's, I find it just much easier to get into a spiritual conversation with them. Um, put me in a taxi with a taxi driver who's a Muslim or a Hindu any day. Uh, you can eat more easily get into a spiritual conversation and more easily actually that can lead to discussion about Jesus. Where it goes from there is maybe a different story. 
But we know that the gospel is powerful, don't we? The, the gospel is powerful to, to break every spiritual stronghold. The gospel is powerful to change people's lives. Most other religions in the world are all about man trying to work ourselves up to being good enough to be accepted by the great spiritual reality. Whereas the gospel is about a God who loves us so much that he came down to rescue us from our sin and to bring us into union with himself through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is powerful to break every spiritual stronghold, to change lives, just as God did for, even for sorcerers and for worshippers of Artemis as he established his kingdom in what was really a heartland of false spiritualities. What excites me less than spiritual diversity is spiritual apathy. You know, you know it's like, don't you? You know, when we're we're surrounded by people who just really couldn't couldn't care less about spiritual things, who are just captured and uh, caught up in, and would rather live their lives for the things which they can see, and the things which they can feel, and the things which they can can own and and experience. And sometimes. Getting a spiritual conversation happening feels like trying to plough concrete, doesn't it? You know what that's like. But we shouldn't wonder what hope is there for the gospel. Because, friends, the gospel is the hope. The hope which all people need. And the gospel is powerful to break even the hardest of hearts... So what we need to be doing is to be praying for God to, to be opening those hearts, cracking them open. We need to be people who are prepared to open our mouths to speak a bit the word about Jesus. And like the Christians in Ephesus who were publicly burnt their scrolls and showing that they were different, we need by our lives to show our world that we treat Jesus seriously and that he has made that change in our lives. Well, next week we're going to look at uh, a little bit more about what happened in Ephesus, um, particularly when Paul uh, had a conversation later on with the new leaders of the Ephesian church and help advise them and gave them instruction on how they should be uh, leading that church so they could continue in this good gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The following week, we're going to have a, we're going to dip into the letter to the Ephesians. Let's pray, shall we? Father, uh, we want to acknowledge that your gospel is powerful um, because it is true and because it is your message of salvation we pray for our world, Father God, that by your spirit that many more people's eyes would be opened and hearts would be softened 
We pray for ourselves that we would uh, preach your gospel, share your gospel, in, uh, uh, and you would open up opportunities for us to do so, and that we would live lives that are worthy of the gospel, that people might actually take note of us and uh, want to know more about what it is we believe and who it is that we serve and what it is that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.